Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture, so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well, then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Ray Rawls. Ray is an attorney, arbitrator, mediator, and facilitator, and she has worked on thousands of cases within the government, within the court system, within corporations, with private parties, and with various organizations and institutions. I brought Ray onto the show today because she is bringing decades of experience facilitating reflective, structured dialogues about complex issues with diverse groups of stakeholders. And with that, Ray brings amazing insights into what is going on with the world right now and what it might take for us to grow and evolve our democracy. I also invited Ray onto the show because Ray is a colleague and a friend of mine and someone who I respect greatly. In this conversation, we talk about dialogue and the elements that make up good facilitated dialogue and why it has the power to transform our relationships and our understanding of complex situations. We also talk about Ray's experience in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are reminded to pay attention to the way that we think about things because it impacts how we experience the world around us and how we relate to it. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. This conversation was recorded in April of the year 2022, and now, please enjoy my conversation with Ray Rawls. Ray, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to talk to you, and I'm also just glad to have you as a colleague and a friend. I'm here. I'm really excited to be here, and I know we're going to have a very rich and rewarding conversation. Thank you for asking. I just want to start by just giving you a chance to talk about your work. What are you doing? Go ahead and introduce yourself and, and the kind of work that you do. All right. Thank you. My name is Raytheon Rose, but because that's a little torturous, I go by Ray Rose. And I have been doing work in dialogue since a little, a couple of years before 2000. And that's when I initially got the training. I work at University of Georgia. I'm on the public service and outreach faculty, which gives me amazing access to various communities, communities of place, communities of practice, higher ed. And so I do a lot of work in those arenas and will probably overshare some incredible stories about that work. I'm also a senior associate with an organization out of Cambridge, Massachusetts called Essential Partners. They actually have ownership of the model of dialogue that I teach and I practice. And it started out as the Public Conversations Project, 
and we'll share some stories about that. It's, I think it's just really amazing the work they do and how they do it. And then I also have my own practice with my name on Ray Rawls Consulting Group. And so, and I sleep sometimes. So I, <laughs> a lot of good stuff going on. I was trained as a lawyer. I started out being a suicide counselor for a county in, in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from. And I love the work, mainly because it gave me an opportunity to do so many different things, kind of like a firefight. You know, when nothing's going on, you can read, you can play games, but then the phone rings or the bell rings and you do your job. And a law school was built in walking distance from my place of work. And I said, oh, okay, now I think I'll go to law school. So I went to law school, finished, and I'm a member of the bar. But during my first year of law school, I took a mediation course and it just shifted everything for me. I felt, okay, there. I'm not just going to law school to go to law school. I went to law school to understand the practices and principles of mediation and how to help people solve their problems and to change the world. So I, I remember with the bar, I was the administrative law judge. I did a wide variety of things, but my heart and spirit was in mediation. And then I took the dialogue training and started working with the Public Conversations Project later essential partner and just felt like this is what I was put on earth to do. And I don't know. I always ask people in my class, anyone doing the work you feel you feel you were born to do, it is so gratifying to see people raise their hands and a smile and acknowledge each other because we know we're doing what we're supposed to do. Um and that's pretty much all yeah. I you know have lots of examples of the work I do. Is that something? Yeah, we got, that's, I'll ask you, that's my next question, but I just also just want to say, wow, like, thank you. And I just want to lift up that experience of going to the mediation training and having the experience going, whoa, this is what we need. This is what I want to do. I I think most of us in this field have had that experience of just being like, wow, we have answers to all of these issues and, you know, just how great. Like you were saying with your earlier work, there's this catch-all of being able to have talk about all sorts of different topics. And it's a big motivation for me is to kind of bring more awareness to the fact that we have the ability to have these kinds of conversations. And most people don't seem to know that. And it's a surprise often that it's actually possible to talk about all the tricky stuff. <laughs> I would be totally interested in hearing some examples of, you know, what are some of the kind of conversations that you've worked with and how did they go and what happened? Tell us a little bit about what it actually looks like. Okay. And when you said what happened, I went, oh, I have to tell it. You know, oftentimes I don't know what happens. The purpose of this approach to dialogue is mutual understanding. At the end of the dialogue, which may be one meeting, 10 meetings, Four years, who knows? We asked the question, where do you want to go from here? I've had people say, I never want to see you again. I'll move out of the community. I'm tired of this battle, that kind of thing. I've had people, let's do strategic planning. Let's do some kind of consensus building. And for a lot of folks, they aren't comfortable with the idea that the purpose of the conversation is to understand different perspectives. It's like, we have problems and we want to solve them. 
and helping people see that sometimes before you solve a problem, you have to understand not only the perspective of the person across it from you or the people across from you, but this approach gives folk a real opportunity to un unpack their own perspectives. And one of the things I love when I hear people talk about, I did not know that was in me. I did not know that that was the lens I was using to view this. I learned not only your perspective, but I got a deeper understanding of where I'm coming from. And then the rainbows and unicorns show up and all of a sudden you have this beautiful light and it's good. We used to have coffee mugs at my mediation center that said shifts happen. <laughs> and I always love that. But I definitely want to make sure to capture this, that the reflective structure dialogue process that, that you learned, you know, through Essential Partners, originally the Public Conversations Project, is a tool about understanding each other. It's not, we're not, it's not the tool for resolving the problem. So it's different than mediation in that sense, right? And it's really about getting that place to people to just see each other's humanity and to really connect with each other. And, but I really like that part that you're saying is not just about me understanding you, but as I'm talking about myself, if it's working well, I'm understanding my own self. Yeah, yeah. Own, the nuances that I didn't articulate, the complexities that I didn't think about because it means I'm not a thousand percent on this side because I kind of get where you're going, but I can't look at that right now because I have to be strong and advocating clear. And we, we don't do the nuances in these spaces and giving people permission to see the value that is amazing and incredibly important. <laughs> Yay for nuance. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And the work on nuances and complexifying and polarization is such good work. And I'm really taking a deep dive into that work because it's essential to the work of reflective structure dialogue. So maybe then less than like what happens coming out of these, just like what are some of the examples of the kinds of conversations that you have been helping with or have helped with over the years? I keep my list in front of me. Once I was hired by some elected officials, county and city, right after the murder of George Floyd and said, we need to develop some policies around protests in our community. We, we need to prepare people for that. But before we sit down and put pen to paper, we'd like to hear various perspectives. The, the members of the city council, video the members of the county commission. And we, we understand that we will not write the policy here. Once we close the dialogue door, we'll write the policies based on it. So our people who write policies all the time, but also our own needs, our interests, our own values, and our hopes for our community. We recognize how important that is. I've done dialogues around what bathroom should a child, a trans child use. I've done that actually twice, once with a group of people who work as counselors in summer camps. 
And in one harrowing story, I guess they told was the father said, this is my daughter. And the mother said, this is my son. And they went, what? How do we, how do we develop policies around that? And again, they recognized that before they sat and, and drafted policy, they need to hear each other's perspectives. The stories of how people came to their values and how they articulated what this issue meant to them. And it was a diversity of values. So the diversity of values around the issue, plus the desire to keep these camps going. I heard it do a presentation on race, equity, and justice. And she just told them, to me, a, a very powerful story, which I, I knew anyway, but it never was articulated that way that when Black, when they start integrating pools, they say, oh no, we're not having Black kids in our swimming pool. We're closing the pool down. And so no one had a conversation about, well, what are the, the Black kids? Where are they going to swim? And it's a, mm-hmm. her name is Heather McGee. You know, I'm trying to get the name of her book. But the, the, when we get caught up in our emotions and our values and our fears and our pain, sometimes we don't think things through. I mean, no one thought about if we fill the pool with cement, you know, why kids don't want to swim in cement either? Right. Need, let's, let's think about that. And I thought, wow, that was so obvious in the telling of the narrative, but people didn't think about that. I love these examples because you know, one of the other aspects of like this project is to think about like how do we make public policy in a different ways. And so often the advocacy around any policy really comes at the end after the policy has been written and then there's just someone voting yes or no and everyone has an opinion about that. But before that happens, there's a whole journey that has to happen for the policy, first of all, just to be written, but to be researched and so forth. And that seems like such a great place for this kind of dialogue to come into the conversation at the very beginning to be like, what do people actually feel and think and want around this and and why? And like that understanding seems really important. Yeah. Before trying to get to the solution. What do we value as a community? So easy to say we support differences except not in my backyard. Right. Or we support differences, but it has to fit into this very small space. And for people, a dialogue, the magic is, I've known you 20 years. I never knew you felt that way. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, I'm fine with the way you think. Or I'm really challenged by this and I need to understand more. So that's great. Defunding police. I was in a training actually last week and it had two law enforcement officers, uh, no chiefs of police in the, in the group. And they were both African-American, which is an interesting space to be in. And I gave them a snippet of dialogue. They both said, we want to have these conversations because we believe that the work that we do is tremendously valuable and that to create strong democratic societies, we have to, people have to feel safe. We also recognize there are some folks who don't act right, but that I can name preacher, a teacher, a doctor, and a lawyer who didn't act right. 
and, and law enforcement officers, some of us fall into that category. But we need to talk about what do people want and need. And when you say defunding the police, which I believe is so unfortunate as a, the heading, because it doesn't really represent what that concept means. How do we talk to people about what this concept means to you? Because it doesn't mean you take all of the money and give it to someone else. I think most of us know that. But what are our values? What values as law enforcement do you want us to uphold? How do we work more uh, closely with community? How do we protect you? Which also means how do we get the feedback that we need to make wise decisions about who becomes uh, a police officer. One of the things that I found surprising was how the educational requirements and how little money law enforcement officers made. And I thought it would be good to have a different, you know, they have, most of them have gone through extensive training, but they don't talk about dialogue. They don't talk about they didn't. It, we, there are just mm-hmm. mental health issues and how they connect with communities. Because what I hear all the time, I've done quite a bit of work with law enforcement officers in communities, that the bottom line is we want to go home every night too, you know. Now, things are shifting again in ways that are really spooky to me. We can talk about that later. But to be in at war with the people who are designated to protect us, I think that's, that's definitely conversations that we need and figure out how we can change the policies and practices. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my inclinations right now is to, is to have you explain a little bit about what are some of the elements of the reflective structure dialogue process. And I know that you, know, you can do a whole training on this, but that'd be interesting thing to talk about. And one of the two things, though, that I know about that that are part of what you're sharing is, one, the importance of including all of the relevant voices, right? So if we're going to be talking about, I know that Oakland, for example, had a conversation about reducing the police budget, and there were no police involved in that conversation, which I thought was very unfortunate. <laughs> really important information missing there. And but also there's this ability to ask good questions and and just like the quality of questions that are really getting people to sink in. And so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about like, how is it that you get people to really reflect and think? What are some of the elements of reflective structured dialogue that make it work the way it does? So as I indicated, first we have to have clarity around the goals of this approach to dialogue. There are lots of different dialogue practices. And this is an approach that has some things in common with other dialogic practice and some things different. And, and it is about the reflection and the structure, which sometimes makes people a little crazy. But I hear all the time, I, this is the first time I had a chance to speak or I felt safe enough to, to speak in a public meeting, be it on Zoom or face-to-face. This is the first time that the president of the blah, 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 had to shut up and listen. So there are a lot of benefits, and we'll talk more about that. Reflective structure dialogue. We talk about creating a container for dialogue. The container is based on shared purpose, 
the structures which I'll describe in communication agreement. Shared purpose. We are here to talk about police community relationship. If you have a problem with someone, your trash not being picked up, that's not this space. And sometimes that, as you can imagine, can be challenging. But when, when we, we talk to people about why meetings and conversations don't work, oftentimes it's because they, there's no real clarity about the purpose. And a strong facilitator who says, Duncan, I'm really sorry about your trash not being picked up, but that's not the purpose of this conversation. And Duncan, if you keep saying, well, but Ray, but Ray, I'll, I may have to mute you. So the role of the facilitator is so critical. And it has to be someone who is willing to keep this container intact. So we all clear about the purpose of the dialogue, and then we talk about other aspects of the container. First thing is people have to agree to each element, the purpose, the the structure which I will describe and the communication agreement. They get invitations prior to joining and during the first part of the dialogue, we ask, are you okay with this? And sometimes people have their own agendas and sometimes I have my own agendas. <laughs> but in this space, we're going to stick to the agreements. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about the structure which at the door. Well, I want to just grab something about this purpose part that I find to be really powerful. In the shared purpose, I like to point out sometimes it's like, look, if everyone can just agree, even what the question is that everyone is trying to answer, you've, you're halfway there. And, and so it's not just about, you know, we're going to limit it to this, but that everyone who's involved thinks this is a worthwhile thing to talk about. Yes. Right? And that might take writing it in some neutral language or, you know, there's like a bit of, you know, but just appreciate that is really lifting up the importance of like finding out, making sure that everyone knows and agrees about what they're going to be talking about. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's huge. And getting people to agree to that and, and based on agreement around the shared purpose there is also implicit agreement to be facilitated that the facilitator will bring you back to that purpose. And I tell people all the time, this is maybe the only time someone will tell you you're off topic, be quiet in a nice and loving way that you'll appreciate. <laughs> because what I'm doing is holding your feet to the fire because you asked me to. When you entered this space, you agreed this is the purpose. And I may have to gently and lovingly remind you about that. So in terms of the structure, we th I think of them as guardrails and that to create safety, you have to have a structure. In the PowerPoint I use, I have these race colors with the guardrails. And the better the guardrails are, the faster you can go to accomplish your goal, which is in that scenario would be winning. We spend a lot of time asking, figuring out what are the questions that need to be asked. It is, we kind of make a joke about it. If the topic is, for example, law enforcement relationships, some of the newies might say, when was the last time you had a, a bad encounter with the police? I, I actually had, and that's not a dialogic question. But can you think of a time in your life when you felt 
fearful or concerned about something and you felt supported? Can you think of a time of life when you felt you weren't supported? Because telling these stories, and I'll talk a little bit, a little bit about the neuroscience. As I said, I'm a lawyer, not a doctor or a scientist, but it's part of this work. All of us who teach dialogue have some understanding of the brain's response to threat. So we ask carefully crafted questions. Oh my goodness, I mean, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. We ask people to think about their response to the question for two minutes or three minutes, which presents its own challenge. Then we ask people to take some notes about their response, you know, describe what that, that's about. <clears throat> then we ask people to respond to the question for a limited amount of time. That I, I describe it as co-creating a different kind of culture so that the person who is an introvert, for example, who really likes to process things before they speak, will get the same opportunities that the people like me who can speak and thinking at the same time and go, Ray, in my head, I'm going, where are you going with this? But I understand that about myself. When you reflect and you know you have a limited amount of time, it does help you get to key essential points. Every once in a while, someone says, this is not working. This does not work for me. But I can say in my experience, that's rare. If people have the opportunity, they know ahead of time the topics, the purpose. They have a given extensive opportunity, extensive being two to three minutes to respond to the question, write it down. And the key to that is once I write it down, I'm committed to it. So if you say something, Duncan, I can't piggyback or respond to what you say. I have to give my original thinking around this and, and we can talk more about that. And then the limited amount of speaking. I know people who do this work all over the world. I did some work with an international mediation organization with a government that was trying to develop policy about the reintegration of people who were labeled terrorists. And it was amazing what people experienced. And the, the, the idea that if I speak what initially came to my heart, my spirit, my mind, then that sets a, a, a framework for a really generative conversation. I'm not just reacting hmm. to what you said. Right. So I mean, what I'm imagining is one question, everyone's getting a chance to answer it. And before that, because they're doing the reflecting and the writing, then it really is making sure that each person is kind of bringing their truest kind of line into this conversation, which is a totally different pace than you say something, I say something, you know, like we're doing now, for example. Right. And yeah, so I just, I love that, like, it's kind of helping people and then extroverts and introverts are able to really do this as well, just to be able to bring, like taking the time to really think about things. And so, yeah, I, really, I can imagine like the real power of making sure that everyone is actually sharing their truth as opposed to just being in the responsive, reactive space. And that's exactly 
the approach was created by family therapists. Laura Chase is the founder of the Public Conversation Project, and one of the key developers of the approach was a family therapist. And she witnessed an interview on national public TV where a wonderful gentleman said, this abortion stuff is crazy. And now, you know, there's violence, there's all kinds of craziness. And what I'm going to do in my position as the MC, I guess, not the DJ, but the MC, I'm going to bring in three people on each side of this abortion issue. And we are going to have a meaningful conversation. And I will guide the conversation. Now, this guy was amazing, wonderful, but not someone with maybe all the requisite training. I would say he got through less than a minute before people were screaming and shouting and spitting all over each other. I mean, just outraged behavior. And he looked at the TV camera and said, well, that was just a bunch of noise. Chase and a family therapist said, you know, we get folk like this in our spaces all the time. That's the essence of our work. When people have gotten into these patterns of shaming and blaming and miscommunication, we know how to create a different kind of container. And I'm curious if we can do in the public sphere what we do with families who have gotten up on these merry-go-rounds of, that ain't right, you didn't like my turkey and you never liked what I do in that, the round and round. And we don't allow that in those spaces. So Laura and her, the, her colleagues, where she worked, her husband, Dick Chase, who was one of the founders of the, the negotiation project at Harvard, and some of the most amazing people I have ever met in my life came together, created their approach, tested it in various parts of the country. I heard wonderful stories about folk one of my dearest friends in the universe saying I was going to rural Alabama and I was being driven by black folk and she was white and having to kind of count, you know, crouch down for safety reasons. But they tested it and tweaked it and did what they thought would be important. And they said, I think this works. And that's my experience. Wow. I just, there's something about the contrast that is, I think, really important. I think when when people think about having an important conversation with people who they disagree with, especially around political things, they imagine that thing that Laura Chasen was watching is debate and everyone's yelling at each other and ca- calling each other names. Or we could imagine like some town hall meeting with people there or people coming up to the microphone and getting their two to three minutes and just like saying something. And, and, and it's just different person saying different things each time and that the quality of this container is is totally different and because of the way that it's slowed down and people are there with an agreed purpose they're actually having a conversation where they're able to really hear each other and just that contrast is so important and i'm glad thank you for sharing that origin story because i know that this confluence of you know of family therapy and sort of the cutting edge conflict resolution tools in the 80s and then the, this abortion debate. And from what I know, they did get that group of people together, the heads of various 
pro-life and pro-choice organizations, and they met in secret for like a year or so, right? And had no, a- no, thirty years, forty. They're still meeting. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what's interesting that no one changed sides. And and when I tell that story, they say, "Well, what's the point?" And then my response is, "What could people who care deeply about this issue on different sides of abortion, what could they have in common?" And one student said, "Everything but abortion." They cared for each other. With we heard stories about if someone was coming to town who was an advocate for violence around this issue. They would call each other and tell each other. And they were, were able to care for each other deeply and still hold them true to their own values around this issue. Yeah. That's, oh, I'm really glad to know that that's been such an ongoing project. And because there is something so powerful about like this stage of let's understand each other and be humans together first. You know, and then we can figure out what we need to do. And so this process gets created. This field of work is there. I I was trained by, I think, Bob Staines and Public Conversations Project model well over a decade ago. And so how many people are out there doing this? What's your sense of the field, like of people having these kinds of dialogues? How do people find them? Great. We do Sequence rounds, three rounds generally, sometimes more or less. Then the fourth round, when you get to ask each other questions of genuine curiosity, which is so amazing, the struggle. And it's like, can you imagine me asking a member of the clan a question of genuine curiosity? I did a dialogue, I guess three or four weeks ago, Chris Singleton, and I've been talking about him nonstop mother was murdered by praying at the church in Charleston. And he is such an amazing speaker and healer and connector of people. And he talked about the value of hearing each other's stories. And he shared that one of his friends was a gun advocate and a hunter. And he asked him, what's the story behind that? And his friend said, First time I killed the deer, my granddaddy picked me up and hugged me and said, I'm proud of you. And he said, I got it then. I'm, I'm not going to change my stance around Dunn. But he became human to me. It's not this crazy lunatic going around shooting everybody. It was someone who had a deep and meaningful personal experience that framed the way he looked at this. And I have... So many, a thousand great stories about that kind of exchange. Of course, I don't have time nor the inclination to share everything, but it's good. In dialogue, you have a right to pass. And people say, why, why are you there if you aren't going to talk? Well, we know now that we can put people into functional MRIs and see what's going on in their brain. And having that level of autonomy gives you permission to engage it at the level you want. And what we have found that a lot of people really want to engage now that they know they have choices about that. And one more thing, the pause. And I always laugh because 
people laugh at me when I talk about the pause and then we do a dialogue and they go, oh, that was amazing. I, we call them people. There's an order to the structure. And you have a choice to speak for the allocated amount of time. You can pass, which says, I don't want to answer that question. Or you can pass for now, which means come back around to me. I can't tell you the number of times people come to me and say that was so helpful, so important. The opportunity to pass and the pause that we require. When you finish your speaking, the person to the right of you, for example, has to pause. I make a pause, two breaths, and I will say to someone, I only saw your chest move. I need you to breathe some more. <laughs> people, that's something we get a lot of feedback on the value of that. It lowers reactivity. It gives you a chance to access the part of your brain that is manages executive function. And of course, that would be important if the person before you said something that really outraged you. Messing the land with all of your values and beliefs. Did you want to hear about the communication agreements? Why don't you share a little bit just like what they are, not specifically, but just the, the role that the communication agreements play, right? It would be really helpful. Yeah. Okay. So the communication agreements are part of that guard ring and part of the unlearning that's required for adaptive leaders that you don't do what you always do when there's a difficult conversation. For example, I talked about the no piggybacking rule, which drives some people insane when I say, even if you were going to say exactly what Duncan said, you've already, you already know your response to the question. Do not attribute it to Duncan. Do not link it with Duncan. It's what you were going to say. So the, the agreements are to provide the structures that are needed. For example, one of the rules that's really hard, for example, is to speak for yourself, not as representative of a group. And people, I, we hear all the time, well, I do represent a group. Yes, you do. Bless your heart. I'm from the South. We say bless your heart. <laughs> but in this space, because we're trying to heal division. We're trying to create, understand, we want you to bring your voice forward as an individual, which will help us understand why you're advocating for this particular way of thinking of being. Because of the story you told, how did you get there? And that allows people to link with you. Listening with resilience, I know there's a question about what's hard about it. If I'm in a group and the conversation is around a lot of topics, but race might be an obvious one, I have to be resilient as a facilitator or as a participant. And, and I am struggling, and I'm not the only one, how you, what do we do with the concept of trauma when we're asking people to be resilient? And I'm, I'm looking for a, uh, a student who's looking for a dissertation topic to write on because I think that's so important. Brave space versus safe space versus safe enough space. So in terms, in, to get back to your question that you asked, you know, I really don't know. I, I know a lot of people are being trained and what I do, I just had a student do quite a bit of research. In fact, her dissertation was around this topic. 
there's a lot going on, but I, I really don't know where the, how many and a lot of work is being done in higher education and policy making, linking that with this approach to dialogue. But well, maybe a, a different way of thinking about this question, just in the sense of like understanding the the state of the field or the state of the art of the field. Who is it best for? Like, who do you wish knew more about this, and what do you wish that they knew about it? You know, like how how would you like to see this field be used more, or this kind of work be used? I would like everyone who interacts with another human being understand something about this approach. I think those of us in in the variety of fields that most of us are in, I imagine on this call, are dealing with the polarization that has become frightening and toxic and dark and evil almost. And I don't see any winners in the way we're framing these conversations now. You're evil, you're stupid, you're wrong. You're went down this rabbit hole. You're no longer thinking the way you, your capacity to think through things is being wiped away. We do dialogue with kids in school. We do dialogue with professionals, with non-profits, with scientists, with, I, I, I'm not being facetious when I say I can't imagine anyone not benefiting from learning how to create spaces where we can work together in spite of our differences and figure out if our goal is to preserve our country, our democracy, to make people feel safe. And I'm not naive. I know that's not the goal of everyone. But I have enough experience and stories to share that sometimes people are coming to the spaces, you're evil, you're Black, which means you don't need to be doing anything important. You obviously aren't well-educated, too. I wish I could say, talk with you a little bit more. And I have a sister who said, well, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. I said, I think it did. When someone comes into a meeting that I'm conducting, a training I'm conducting to talk about this approach to dialogue and they have Confederate memorabilia and stuff all over their clothes and I'm going, oh dear Lord. And they say, I wish I could talk to you a little more. That was important. I mean, it makes sense to me. It's a really powerful thing to say that there's something here for anyone who wants to be communicating across differences. Obviously there's like a whole structure and a container and we can, you know, create all of that. But I even just recognizing just in anyone's day-to-day -day conversations, the ability to be like, hey, let's just clear about what is the purpose of our conversation right now. Why are we talking about this? Do you want to understand each other and just come into an agreement of do we even want to understand each other? Or to even, you know, come up with agreements on how we can talk and just a conversation. Yes. Or to think about, is that a question that I'm interested in answering? Is that a question you want to answer? You know, there's something about that. And then also that desire to want to hear each other as seems so important. And then the questions of genuine curiosity. I, I always laugh when I talk about it because for some people, I remember doing the dialogue around and the category of commemorative landscapes in, I'm in Georgia and uh, there is a courthouse that had a stone on it where black people were lynched 
doing slavery. And the idea that wanting to create the questions that will allow people to re- deeply reflect on something that they see this is not about supporting slavery. This is about heritage and history and that kind of thing. And framing questions where people can really start thinking about, yeah, that's the way I see it. But your story makes me see it another way. And I did some work with an organization of Black public administrators. And to hear that even in that group, there were a couple of folk who said things. I want them to leave that statute thing. Because when I passed that, that's an opportunity for me to teach my son and my daughter and my children about what the history is. So for people to see the nuances and complexity, all Black people don't think alike. Mm-hmm. Because a friend of mine was doing some training around dialogue. He said, Ray, the guy told me, I have never felt this comfortable with a Black person. The way you framed it, the goals to connect and really try to understand each other. And I want to ask you a question that I've been wanting to ask someone for many years. And my friend who's African-American said, what's your question? He said, what do Black people do on Martin Luther King's birthday? I went, oh my, he said, Ray, I fell out laughing. I said, I can tell you what I do, but I can't speak for other Black people. But the idea that there are people out there, whether in appropriate ways or funny ways or weird ways, are seeking connections mm-hmm. and creating a pathway for them to ask that kind of question. And be okay with. What I like about that example is that it both highlights the value of speaking from one's own experience, right? I like to think about, you know, telling your own story is just a better story, right? It's more compelling, more interesting, people would want to hear it. But that, you know, we can't speak on behalf of all the people we represent, even if we're formally representing them. And the power of genuine curiosity, I think, is, is really important and like in the end it's like really trying to create connections and it's a powerful thing and and it can be conveyed as that even if it's you know kind of a question that you can't answer and you know might seem like a silly question it it sounds like in this case you recognize that there's genuine curiosity behind this person yeah Yeah, and it was a teachable moment now Mm -hmm. if someone said and i did have to with the uh the confederate monuments and South Georgia and the the rock was like, do you think if you prayed more, you could understand that the other perspective? Well, that's not a question of genuine curiosity. That's a question that says, I have the answer for you. Mm -hmm. Frame it as a question, but this is what you need to do. And so we facilitated a lot of work to help people ask questions of curiosity and not rhetorical questions of questions that have a tremendous amount of judgment. So I want to ask a little bit about some of the challenges that are coming up that come up around dialogue. You mentioned, for example, the role of trauma, you know, and that certain folks may not be able to have that resilience in their listening that is like an important quality. One of the questions that got shared from the participants is about like the role of social media and how that might be impacting dialogue. And so just be curious if you just talk about some of the the challenges 
and and what are the, and really like what are the kind of the, the questions and you know with maybe the hope that someone out there listening might be like oh I totally have some great ideas about this but <laughs> yeah what are some of the challenges that you see happening well you know I have a perspective and a point of view that for a lot of people some of them the black students I work with say I don't want to be in a space where I need to hear perspective of people who don't acknowledge me and don't as a human being. So the, there's a lot of judgment in terms of, and a mediator's got the same kind of thing, you know, what's the difference between mediating agreement and sometimes justice is not a part of that agreement, was fair. The idea that wanting to create spaces where people of different races, ethnicities, religions can come together and connect. That's a value that I have. But everyone doesn't share that value. Um, Chris Singleton, the, the guy whose mother was murdered, praying, told the story of about his response. That's something I have a response to. You white people don't expect me to educate you. You all go off and do your own work. And I'm going, how does that work? If, if he said that going off on your own and being separate from each other is why my mother is dead. We got to fix this and we fix it through connection. Now that's a value and a point of view I have. I know some people don't share that. And I'm often in spaces, particularly with students, when they're like, oh dear Lord, back away from me. But from my perspective, there's a whole lot around separating us. And you've heard me talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion training, which I've been has to develop some new approaches to that research says a lot of what we've done over the years doesn't work. That it can be harmful. I was talking to a, a colleague, a mediator, about his experience with the privileged walk. And invariably, the privileged walk involves, and for those of you who don't know, you ask questions. If your parents sent you to Europe when you were in high school, take three steps forward. If you've never, if you've been without food, take three steps backward. Oftentimes the privileged walk results in white people being way up front and people of color being in the back. That, that's a reality. But I always say, do you ever ask questions like, did your mom and daddy sing to you and read to you? And that's important to me because both of my parents did. So going to Europe is lovely. I didn't go to Europe. But my dad is sick and saying to me and ran. Mm -hmm. So how, how we take some steps back and think about the work we're doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which now... We're seeing the craziness behind it. You can't talk about slavery in school. I mean, it's a lot of crazy going on. And I think we, in this field, 
need to take steps back and say, what are we teaching? What is our purpose? What do we do to create spaces where we can work across our differences with the goal of strengthening our democracy? Wow. Thank you for this. And I wanted to to shift a little bit bigger into some of the bigger picture. And you're already going there a bit. And one of the questions I want to ask is about what does your ideal future looking like? Like, where do you, would you like to see us going? And you mentioned this idea of like, I would like to see us be more connected and like relationships are how we can be better connected. And I like also know about this idea of wanting to have more nuance and so forth. And I also recognize that you're saying like, well, right now we have some energy, interesting challenges that people aren't necessarily wanting to be more connected or more in relationship. But I hear in you that there's a belief in this value that if we can actually talk to each other and have the real conversations that help us get to know each other more, that we can come closer together. So I don't know, I'm just recognizing the complexity and nuance already, just even in this topic. What are the challenges you're seeing and like what direction would you like to see things go? Right now, if you ask me the question in two weeks, I may have a different answer, but right <laughs> I'm really immersing myself in the conversations around polarization and conversations around social media. And Peter Coleman has done some really great work. And I bet everybody on this call can list someone who's really looking at the issues of polarization and helping, helping us figure out how we can move away from toxic polarization to complexifying issues. I shared the story with a dialogue that I was doing around Believe Women and Me Too, the Me Too movement. And I was in the room with some fantastic people and they were, believe women, you don't need to be challenging them. You don't, they don't need to prove anything. And it was almost consensus around that they were looking at some policy development. And then at the end of the dialogue, I put up a picture of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a, a young Black man, he was actually a teenager who was murdered because a woman said he touched her and whistled at her. And her husband and brother-in-law, members of the clan, they annihilated him. And his mother insisted that his body, his casket be open at the funeral so people could see what they did to the, her son and what happens when we hate each other so much that we don't see our humanity. And, and some of you were on the call with Daryl Davis, who is a Black jazz musician, whose work is about helping people coming from out of the clan and hate groups. I met one of the founders of the organization now is called Free Radicals, like, but it was initially Life After Hate. And when she, she took the dialogue train, she came to me and she said, your work sounds very similar to my work. And I said, oh, tell me what you do. And she described it. They got people out of the neo-Nazi groups and that kind of thing. You don't do it by you're wrong, you're evil, God's going to kill you. It's about sharing stories and making connections where all of a sudden you're saying, you may start out with, I know one good Black person, Ray, and maybe maybe there are others, and maybe I can remove this veil from my eye because of the, the way we got to talk and relate to each other. That was, that's the work of 
Daryl Davis, Jesse Martin, some of you may be familiar with his work. And I'm real clear, I'm very clear that this is one tool. I know I was told where if if everything goes crazy, because people are buying guns like crazy where I live. I don't have a gun. I kind of think I need one, but I'm not there yet. But I do know the church I can go to where everybody has a gun in case, case things get crazy. So I'm not saying this is the be all, end all, do all, but it is an approach that over the time I've been working with, I've seen, I've seen transformations and, and, and things that touched me to my heart. And I've also seen people say, this is not for me, or this was a waste of my time. I'm not the, it's not a panacea, but I think it's a powerful tool to say that in spite of our differences, many of our differences, not all of them, we can work together, build our communities, create spaces where we can hear with each other, connect with each other, and maybe even change each other's hearts and spirits and, and support, you know, what this country stood for, stands for. It has never quite gotten there yet, but let's not go backwards. Let's keep moving forward. It's how I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, one of the things I was thinking about recently is like, well, we either can have our democracy is not working totally great right now, our political system is struggling. But we can either go the direction of more democracy or less democracy. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it's important what you're saying, that this isn't a panacea. Like, and if someone comes in ready to commit violence, the gun defense might be the right choice at that point. The reflective structure dialogue probably isn't going to uh, take care of that situation, right? And there are times when we need to make concrete decisions, and it's not just about connecting. But... What I hear is that, especially like thinking about the work of Daryl Davis and so forth, like the long, slow change, that, that sustainable, durable change happens by connecting as humans and really getting to connect with each other. And, you know, and I, I think that's something that reminds me of something that I would like to see in our system is a little bit less of the, we need to solve the problem right now, urgency. And, oh, we need to solve this problem. It's important. It's going to take time for us to do it right. But if we do it right, then we can actually maybe make some changes that actually stick around for a little bit. And, you know, so this is like a tool in the toolbox. And it's the part that, that is about that human connection. And also, as we were saying earlier, it's like really great upstream in this journey. I'm curious for your advice, actually. as I'm talking to various folks about different aspects that they're bringing, the other tools in the toolbox, and trying to lift up some of these things. I recognize that I'm stepping into a long, long journey too, right? And it's going to take us a long time to, to get on track. I'm just curious if you have any advice or thoughts or questions or anything that you think that I should be thinking about or our audience should be thinking about or that can help us do the long, slow work of making some of these repairs. What, what advice might you have? Yeah. yeah, to be curious about this approach. I know we probably have a lot of mediators on the call and 
negotiators and problem solvers and explore it. There's good stuff uh, on the internet about it. Papers are being written. We're talking with some folk about how do we blend this with mediation in terms of asking better questions. I think a lot of us know that the field of mediation is in many ways shifting. And if the only question that you have is how will this end up in court, that's kind of limiting. But I'm finding that in my training, mediators spending a lot more time in asking different kinds of questions, questions that give people an opportunity to hope to look in your eyes and try to figure out what's important to you and how did you get that. But even as equally as important, pull that mirror up to me and say, how, how did I get here? What stories allow, put me on this path? What are my values? Where, where is the internal conflict around this? Where, where am I less certain? What am I tuning out? Because it feels like a violation to me. And, you know, I have to be in a dialogue space. That's not naturally who I am. It tickled me one person said, you must be so peaceful and, and, and all of these wonderful things. And that's why you do this work. I said, no, I do this work to turn down the rage and sometimes the anger and the fear. And so I'm hoping that, you know, I will doubt it. But it, it's really good stuff. And I love to talk to anyone about it. And like I said, just check it out and see if it can add to the very important work everyone on this call is doing. Yeah, thank you. It's, I will say that uh, whoever's listening to this, wherever you're listening to it, um, there's going to be, I'm going to include a bunch of resources. And so I'm going to make sure that some of these resources about the work and how people can apply it will be available and and so I, and I, I love that like the intersection of dialogue and mediation I always find that to be interesting that these fields are not more integrated and so but the use of great questions are just sort of very powerful stuff and then for folks that maybe have never even heard, like witnessed a mediation or a dialogue or anything like what might they need to know about this? I mean, other than it exists and it works. <laughs> I, I guess now more than ever, people need to know that there are practitioners and reflective folk and good people who are trying to figure out how we can hold this planet together. And, and, and if that's a value that you have, I encourage you to look at the the, the DPACE website. It's some really good stuff and powerful stuff about that. It's not as probably as fun to some of you as maybe a TikTok, though I imagine folk on this call appreciate the value of this way of thinking about healing and holding containers so that. You know, it's so easy to believe it can't happen here. And you know, all of this thing about Ukraine and the pain there in the Yemen and oh, Afghanistan, all over the world. But 
we're we're okay, we're safe. And um, I don't want to be dire and rough, but I'm thinking we, we have work to do. There's a lot of work we can do. And so if you're interested in saving the planet, be around sea level rise or plastic in the oceans or the air we breathe, I mean, are just feeling safe in your home. I encourage you to follow through on the resources that we'll be providing to you because there's some amazing people doing this work and I'm honored to be in the presence of some. I can be your friends. Thank you, Ray. I really appreciate this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now. And we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.